Luke chapter 23, verse 34 is where we'll spend, spend our few moments tonight. How privileged we are to be able to zoom in on the words of Jesus Christ as he is about to complete the work of salvation. We get to see the words of Jesus Christ as he is about to die. Something absolutely vital about a man's last words, about a person's last words. I, I think to myself, what would I say if it was my last words? If I knew that I only had a short amount of time to live, what would I say? I'd probably pull my sons in and try to share something profound with them, try to tell them to grow up and be godly men, faithful men that love the scriptures, love Jesus, love their wives, love their family, submit themselves to a church. I would probably share something like that, or I'd talk to my wife and bring her in and probably talk to her and share moments of, uh, that we've had in the past and probably try to share something for the future with her as well. I, I, I might, on my deathbed, repent, I might tell her not to get remarried. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I'm just saying, I might do that. But I don't know. I, I may pull some friends in, close friends. I may pull them in and, and try to share something and talk about moments that we've had. The interesting thing about our verse tonight is that Jesus does none of this. Jesus doesn't do any of it. But he spends the first of the seven last words busting out in a prayer. He spends his moment praying. Think about this. The Christ that was silent before people decided not to be silent before his father. He wasn't silent before his father. And we knew that he was silent before men because Isaiah 53, 7 tells us that, right? It tells us that like a lamb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before a shear, he was silent and opened not his mouth. And so he was quiet to men. But he wasn't quiet to his father. And so Jesus, for prayer for Jesus isn't out of habit. It's the very nature of who he is. It's the very essence of who Jesus is. Isn't it funny how Jesus can experience the full weight of the wrath of God and not lose his prayer life? But we go through little stuff and we shut down prayer. We close the doors, we turn the lights out, we put our heads up under the cover, and we stop praying. But Jesus is experiencing the full rate of the wrath of God, and he still is prevailing in his prayer life. His, his, his prayer life was birthed out of him knowing his position as a son. Look at what he says. He says, Father 107 times through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he calls out Father. This shows intimacy. This shows a deep depth of intimacy between the Father and the Son. And he doesn't stop that intimacy just because the wrath of God is being poured out on him. A few weeks ago, my, my family and I were, uh, we, we were staying in a hotel and we had double beds and my kids were in the next bed and my, my youngest son fell asleep and he, he started to call out my name. He's saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And so we, my wife and I, we're chuckling, we're laughing. And the next morning, I wake him up. I'm like, what were you calling? What were you dreaming about? And he says to me, well, I was in trouble and I was calling you, but you weren't there. You didn't show up. That's what he said about me in his dream. Yeah, it hurt my heart, but it made me excited about God because God is a father that will be there. God is a father that if you call him, he will be there. He's not an absentee father. He's not a father that skips out on child support. He's not a father that waits and has 18-hour long days of work and is tired when he comes home. But he's a father that can do something about what you're praying about because he's sovereign and he's in complete control. But more interesting than, than, than Christ's 
um, consistency in prayer is his content. Look at what he prays. He says, Father, forgive them. His first petition, his first prayer is not even a prayer for himself. But he decides to pray for the people that are transgressing against him. He seems to lose sight of the fact that he's being transgressed again. And he's concerned not just for the father's offense, but he's concerned for those that are transgressing against him. He's concerned for their souls. In this moment, he's concerned about them. He's fulfilling right now Isaiah chapter 12, the last verse of Isaiah chapter 53, the last verse, verse number 12, says he makes intercession for the transgressor. And so he's, he's fulfilling scripture even as he's on the cross. Jesus could have said, Father, condemn them. He could have prayed, Father, execute full judgment on them. But he doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them. Them, them. Who is he talking about? Them. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the Roman soldiers right here? Think about the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers routinely would have crucified people. In fact, these Roman soldiers are bored with the fact that they're crucifying our Savior because the verse says that they're casting lots. And so they're callous to death around them. They're callous to the fact that they are crucifying the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is he praying for the Roman soldiers? Maybe he's praying for Pontius Pilate. Surely he may be praying for Pontius. Why? Because Pontius Pilate had given approval for his crucifixion. But he earlier he said, I find no wrong with this man. So maybe he's praying for him. Maybe he's praying for the chief priest. And maybe he's praying for the scribes. These are the men that paid off Judas to betray him. These are the men that also gave money to other people to falsely testify against him. Maybe he's not praying for any of them. Maybe he's praying for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are men, surely, that have went against his teaching about the kingdom. These are men that, 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 that Jesus went against their tradition. Maybe he's praying for the men that wrapped the, the blindfold around him and struck him in his face. Maybe he's praying for the men that pulled out his beard. Maybe he's praying for Peter. The chapter before this, Peter just denied him three times. Maybe he's praying for you and me. Surely no one nailed Jesus to the cross more than you and I. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so he's not just praying for Pontius Pilate. He's not just praying for the Pharisees. He's not just praying for the Sadducees, but he's praying for us. We tend to look at, and I'm closing my time here, we tend to look at Peter and say, oh, man, I can't believe Peter betrayed Jesus like we wouldn't have done it. The only difference between Peter and us is our trifling selves didn't get recorded in Scripture like Peter did. It's the only difference. The only difference. But please understand that Jesus on the cross is bearing our iniquities. Our sin is what put him there. I love the song that says it's our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So I just want to leave you with this thought that Jesus is not only praying for our forgiveness, but he purchased it with his blood. Let me paint a picture for you guys. Now, before these words were spoken, there were two men, both identified as criminals paying their debt of the crimes they committed with their own lives by dying on a cross next to our Savior, Jesus. Both were revealed the reality of who Jesus was. They knew his story. They knew the testimony of who he was. They knew the claims and pretensions that were being made of him. Both were at arm's reach of salvation. Both had 
and opportunity. Yet the crucial difference between these two men was simple. One thing. One thing. It was their response to the truth. Not a truth, but the truth. One man responded in unbelief. He mocks Jesus by saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He denies who Jesus is and is unwilling to believe in what Christ is proclaiming. Why? Because he couldn't see beyond circumstance. How could a man dying next to him be the savior and king? How could somebody that is paying the same quote-unquote price that is next to me be that savior and king? It was a refusal to say yes to the lordship and power of our Jesus. The other with eyes to see and ears to hear, responds to the heart of the gospel. You see, it is by grace through faith in Christ alone we are saved. And he embraces the holistic reality of that. Listen, he rebukes the other when he was speaking to Christ. He says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, are we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, claiming that I am not innocent. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, it is by grace he realized he had nothing to offer. He was hanging on a tree for his trespasses. He was hanging on a tree because he was justly being punished. And it was the fear of the Lord that led him to understanding, I need a savior. It was through faith to believe Jesus as innocent and thus he had to be the true savior and king. Who is this man standing, hanging next to me that he would die when he's innocent? He has to be the Savior and King. Yeah. And it's only in Christ, only in Christ there is freedom. That's why when he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, I proclaim you as that true King and Savior. And this Jesus' response to this man's plea is glorious, it's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's sufficient. It embodies the love of God. Think about it. This man has the audacity after a life of lawlessness, lacking any type of righteous good work, you got to recognize this guy was hanging on a tree for his trespasses and sins. Hanging on a cross with nothing to present unto God but his sin. He doesn't hide behind any veneer. He doesn't hide behind anything. He doesn't pretend to be somebody that he's not. He doesn't pretend to be that he's somebody that he claims to be. Literally on his deathbed with no opportunity to prove himself worthy. And he has the audacity to ask Jesus for salvation has the audacity to be remembered in the eternal kingdom, and Jesus says, absolutely. Because these words, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, reveals that our God, my God, his God, our God, the God, is the one who delights in showing us mercy and has the absolute power to reveal that. Let me say that again. It is our God who is the God who delights in showing us mercy and has the absolute power to give it. How beautiful that statement is. That in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being mocked by the people that he created, being mocked and people denying Christ's salvific reality, in the midst of being put to death by those that he loves, Jesus is still quick to extend salvation to one more person. You recognize that? That God is faithful until the end. That even while he's dying for sinners, when one person cries out, Jesus, remember me. Christ says, I already remember you. And today you will be with me in paradise. This is good news. And I, we have a reason to sing because God does not wait for me to be perfect in order to save me. 
Dude was hanging on a tree, naked, bleeding for his sin. And Christ says, I make you worthy. I rejoice because it is never too late to be saved. It is never too late to be saved that God is forever faithful to the end. Guy was on his deathbed, a couple hours left to live, and God says, I snatch you, you are mine. And I have a reason to worship. Why? That the extension of grace, the gift of faith, the power of Christ that was made available to that man on that day is the same in this moment. It's available for me, for you, and for all of us. People of God, we have to remember the gift of salvation. People of God, we have to remember that Christ paid it all. People of God, we have to remember that it is because of who we are in Christ that we have been set free. And for those that are here that are not in union with Christ, be encouraged. Would you respond to the love of God today so that one day you and I, us, the body of Christ, that we would dwell in the presence of Christ and that man that was next to him in paradise. Amen. I remember growing up as a son, naturally, um, <laughs> watching my mother fight to raise me, to, to comfort me, to, to care for me, to, to love me. But I must admit, I wasn't the, the most well-behaved young man. I, I, I lied. I, I cheated. I stole a, a pack of 25-cent Winter Fresh bubble gum from the corner store. I got whooped for. But even in all that, when she, when she dealt with me, she dealt with me with such a compassion and a motherly love. Even in the midst of my mess, in the midst of my madness, she still loved me. But this isn't the circumstance of the son who is here stretched wide on his wooden cross. Yet here is Jesus, the perfect son. The one who never lied, who never cheated, who never stole. The best son a mother could have, perfection. And he's hanging there on this tree, hanging by nails in his hands and nails in his feet, bleeding, hurt in pure agony. And looking up at his torn flesh is his mother who loved him, who cared for him, who, who watched him grow, who watched him teach and do miracles, who, 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 who watched him do all of these things, laugh and play, and now is watching him die. And I can imagine Mary here recalling the, the prophecies that this day would soon come as she looked up at her son, brutally beaten and pinned to a cross and felt the emotional pierce of the sword that was cutting her own soul. So seeing all of that, Jesus calls to her. He says, woman, behold your son. In other words, if you need a son to care for you, to provide for you, look to the disciple John. Not calling her mother or mom, he calls her woman. And this wasn't disrespectful, but it, it, it denotes the character of her in her helplessness in this time of comfort, that she needed comfort. And it, it severed the mother-son relationship that they once had, and it moves him from son to her savior. Hmm. And as Jesus was there, nailed to the cross, and, and during the agony of the cross, the, the salvation of the world being hung in the balance, he looked down at his mother and thought of her loneliness <laughs> in the days to come. And understanding this, this earthly duties as the oldest son, he provided for his mother an earthly substitute. So he could do the will of his father, becoming a spiritual substitute. <laughs> and the role of the oldest son was to care for his mother. And it seems clear that Jesus here fulfills his responsibilities as the oldest son. 
Even as he hangs on the cross, he didn't forget his earthly duties, nor the emotions or the circumstances of his mother. And even while enduring the pain of the cross, he thought of someone else's sorrow. Mm. Then he says, son, looking to his disciple John, behold your mother. Jesus gave his mother, his mother an earthly substitute. He gave her a son to care for her, to love her. His disciple who he walked with and who he taught is not a, it's now your role to care for her as if she was your own mother. This day Mary lost a son but found a savior. He was now her divine substitute who was dying in her place as her savior. And the love that he showed her was much more vast than all the love of his whole life that she showed him. He cared for her spiritual needs, but also took time to show compassion and care for her physical and emotional needs. And I know we throw up these five-point tulip gang signs and, and love songs that talk about how much we don't deserve the love of Jesus. But, but while I'm not mad at that, sometimes I just need to understand that, that the Lord actually loves me. That he actually cares for me. He actually cares for my needs. And when I'm struggling and when I'm going through, I need to be reminded of songs like he's an on-time God. Yes, he is. I need to be reminded of what a friend we have in Jesus. Or when I'm discouraged and I'm feeling down, I need to be reminded of verses that say he'll never leave me or forsake me. Or cast your cares on him for he cares for you. That I can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. He is there. He hears. And he cares. And maybe you're here today mentally, physically, emotionally broken. Let me remind you that the God we serve is there. He hears and he cares. If you're struggling with your finances, struggling with a, a family emotional ties, struggling with friends, yes, he takes care of your sinful soul, but he's there in the time of need. <laughs> and if he can move mountains, if he can grab your soul from ruin, putting, pulling you away from the wrath of God that will eternally destroy you, and by all means, he's able to care for your loneliness, your brokenness, your hurt, your struggle. So today, look to Jesus that supplies all of your needs and who is there, who hears, and who cares. So as we examine the life of Jesus, there is a consistent theme that comes up time and time again. The life of Jesus Christ is marked by intimacy with his Father. Amen. And let's just look at a couple examples. First, we find a 12-year-old boy, Jesus. His family just went on a trip. They get halfway back home, they realize they left him behind, right? So they rush back, they do everything short of filing a missing persons report, right? And and they go and think, where did we last see Jesus? And they find him in the temple having a theological debate with the religious leaders. And his mother says, what are you doing, Jesus? Why would you do this to us? Why would you put us through this? He said, didn't you know? I have to be in my father's house. I have to be here. 18 years later, let's uh, fast forward. We're on the banks of the Jordan. And we see Jesus getting baptized by his cousin John. As he comes up out of the water, a dove descends upon him, and a voice comes out of heaven like thunder, breaks the silence, says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That, that's a voice of a doting father. He's proud of his son. He says, that's, that's my boy. Let's move ahead one more time. And we find Jesus teaching his disciples one of the most fundamental spiritual disciplines, prayer. And they're not surprised when they find out that he says, 
when you pray, pray to our Father, because Jesus had a reputation for disappearing, and he would vanish sometimes, whether it was in the middle of the night or it was in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus was praying to his Father. In fact, if you look at the text, every single verse, every single time Jesus prays in the Bible, he prays to his Father. Except one time. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus echoes the words of King David when he prays not to his father this time, but to his God. Now we know it's the same person, but it is significant that Jesus does not address father, but he addresses God because as he hangs on the cross, for the first time in his life, Jesus feels separated from God. He knows something has changed. The love that he has known for the past 33 years was now absent. The fellowship that he enjoyed for eternity past was gone. And the position of preeminence he held with his father has ceased. The son was experienced what it's like to come under the wrath of God. And for the first time in history, the father and son were separated and the text says darkness covered the land. Why was this happening? That's the question. Why did this terrible event have to take place? Why did this happen? What caused this? We did. We caused this. Because in that moment, as Jesus took on God's wrath in our place, our sin cloaked him like a filthy garment. Every wicked deed we had committed was placed onto Jesus. He became sin, the text says. That's right. Jesus represented all of our evil. And the father had to look away. It was too ugly. It was, he couldn't come near his son anymore. He had to separate himself from his son. And in that moment, the innocent became guilty. The blessed became cursed. And the anointed became abominable. But there's good news. There's good news there. Because since Jesus was abandoned, you can be adopted. Since Jesus was deserted, you can be defended. And since Jesus was forsaken, you can be fully justified and forever secure. So my question is, my question is, where are you today? Do you feel weighed down with fear? Do you feel weighed down with fear today? Do you live with the guilt of something terrible you did? Do you feel like God's fed up with you? Or maybe you don't feel the weight of your sin. Maybe you're very proud of yourself. Maybe you think God's pretty lucky to have you. Maybe you've forgotten how sinful you really are. Whatever category you fall under, I want you to leave here tonight with the image of Christ being abandoned in your mind. I want you to get the picture of what it looks like for God to abandon his son in your mind. And next time you create a mess that you can't get out of, I want you to picture Christ being abandoned. Every time your pride causes you to look down at others, I want you to remember Christ being abandoned. And every time you wonder if God is going to show up, I want you to remember Christ being abandoned because, church, 
Since Christ was abandoned, God will never abandon you. Amen. I know about y'all. I just want to shout after that word. I think we can. Pastor AJ, man, we're that. Woo! The Lord. Yo, so I thirst John 19, 28 is where we're at today. Check this. It's 92 degrees outside. Your hot is humid from the West Coast. I can't stand humidity, but I live in it for the sake of the cross. But you get humid. You get no AC. Your AC's blown out. Your water is turned off. And in the midst of that, you see a fire hydrant. And you're saying, I know if I can get to that fire hydrant, then I know that I can quench some of that heat. I can get some of that water. I know it can spray for my kids to play in the midst of the street. So I run down the stairs. I open it up, and nothing's in there. It's dry as a desert. The irony of the very thing that is supposed to bring water is dry. So how is it when we look in John, John is inspired by the Spirit, and he puts the teachings of Christ that says Jesus is the one who actually provides the thirst. He'll quench your thirst. He says as in John chapter 4, 5, and 7. So how is it the one who is supposed to and says that he will satisfy and quench your thirst with the water that he provides, how is he in John 19 on the cross saying, I thirst? The irony, don't miss the irony in that. Because in the irony, what's happening is that John is bringing something up that says, don't miss this. There's something about your thirst that you're not getting. Something about what you thirst for is going more towards separation and pain and hurt than experiencing what we see Jesus says, I bring thirst to fulfill you. And so that's what's happening there is that he brings this to say we have an inclination to pursue physical thirsts to try to satisfy a more comprehensive thirst that is only spiritual and can be met by God himself. So Jesus knows this, and what he does is he begins to say, in order for you to begin to know what this means to say, Jesus says, I have to thirst. He had to thirst physically and spiritually to begin to see what is it that he offers in John 4, 5, and 7. And here's what he says in John, Psalm 22. The psalmist says, my tongue was dry and it stuck to my mouth. I don't know if you've been that dehydrated before. It was stuck to his mouth. The psalmist in Psalm uh, 42 and 63 says, my soul thirsts. Thirst for the living God. And so there's a physical and there's a spiritual thirsting. And Jesus, what he's doing, he's pointing. When he says, I thirst, he's pointing to his call and passion to fulfill all areas of thirsting. He fulfills the physical thirst. When he's on there and he says deliberately to fulfill scripture, he says, I thirst. That scripture is back probably most likely in Psalm 69 when David was suffering under the hands of his persecutors. And David specifically says, 
after all the persecution, they gave me bad wine. They gave me sour wine that was like vinegar, and they gave me poisonous food. And Jesus comes in, and he assumes that, and he says, I thirst to invite the fulfillment of that scripture, which brought on even more suffering. And so what we see, Jesus identified with physical suffering. When he says, I thirst, he had to become what we were in all areas to experience and go through everything that scripture talked about to fulfill the physical thirst of what it is to navigate life on this side of eternity and the pains and the turmoils. And what we see there in that thirst, you can be assured that Jesus, because he physically thirsted, he took on flesh, he endured the pain of crucifixion, the, 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 the lungs being jacked up, he can't breathe anymore, and he's trying to figure out what is happening, and so he knows what it's like to go through pain. If you are in seasons now, when you're thirsting in dry and weary lands, and you're trying to make sense of the brokenness of life on this side of eternity, know this, that Jesus thirsted so that you can know that he's with you. If you're in Christ, you can know that Jesus is with you. Not only that, not only did he, 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 he also that prophecy talks about, he didn't yearn for the luxuries of the world. Jesus could have done anything on the cross, but by saying, I thirst, he knew by fulfilling that scripture as the Lamb of God who lived a perfect life, who endured everything that you endured, he knew that he would invite more of this sour wine. He would endure more of this, and he did this for you and me. And so he was focused and submitted to the will of the Father to fulfill scripture, even in the pain and inviting more pain. For us, you, we have not out-suffered our Savior, and yet it's good news for us. Not only that, but he had to fulfill spiritual thirst, right? We see that my soul thirsts for the living God. There, our thirsts are off-kilter. We, we thirst and we go to the wrong things, and yet, so Jesus comes, and what he does is when he thirsted, he specifically took on the full, unleashed wrath of God. Think about that. He thirsted from fellowship with the Father so that we would have forgiveness. That's the image, is that when you think about, God, how could God die for this sin? He thirsted and took on the very wrath of Almighty God, his Father, so that we wouldn't have to thirst under the wrath of God. Because it's thirsting from fellowship. It's denied. It's thirsting from the intimacy with God. Jesus thirsted so that we don't have to thirst under the wrath of God. And so what he did is in those areas when Jesus fulfilled the physical and the spiritual, he had to take it all to redeem it all. He didn't leave anything out. The only thing left out, he didn't sin. And praise God, because that journey of walking to Calvary was a painful. He felt every single ounce of the pain in his body. And as he was feeling that, he did it for the joy set before him. So as he walked that, he's thirsting in this dry and weary land that rejected him as creator. 
right? But then he goes and he dies and fulfills what we never could. And so as we see that, it's in Christ's thirsting where we in him don't have to worry about thirsting indefinitely in all areas of life. Because he thirsted. I know that trouble won't last always here. But in Christ's thirst, I am quenched. Today, forgiven of sin. And one day, he gives me access to share in the Revelation 22 picture. Where I'm enjoying the river of life that comes through Jesus Christ. He thirsted so I don't have to thirst. But I can be quenched because he fulfilled it all. That video was taken in the hood right there, boy. <laughs> Woo! That was in the hood. We was trying to get a good angle on that video, and every angle was bad. Every one of them. I ain't lying to you. Y'all pray for us. We live. All right, I'm sorry. Okay. That's my time. Okay. Ambition. Ambition is a, a strong desire to accomplish a goal or achieve a task. It typically requires determination and hard work and is subsequently followed by success. And by God's grace, as I look out into the congregation this evening, I see people that are filled with ambition. People by the Lord's grace have accomplished some goals in their life. And for those who are ambitious tonight, nothing is more humbling than realizing that there are some goals that you just can't achieve because they're outside of your control. Uh, but nothing is more satisfying when someone who's stronger than you is able to accomplish that goal and allow you to be a beneficiary. Well, as we reach, our, as we reach Jesus' six utterance on the cross of Calvary, he's informing those at the foot of the cross and eventual readers of John's gospel that he's accomplished a feat that we couldn't accomplish. He's completed God's assignment upon earth and made the payment for our atonement, and he signified it by the words, it is finished. It, his atonement, is the place and time in which it happened. Finish is come and it's untainted conclusion. Now what's interesting about this statement is that it's translated from one Greek word. And digging through the multiple layers, we know that this word is tetelestai. It's in the, the perfect passage, pa perfect passive. And that means that it's spoken of in our language in the present tense. But in the Greek, it's in the past tense. And it's, and it's translated that way because it's letting us know that Jesus Christ, who was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, is a past tense action that has continual and ongoing effects in the future. In other words, our, our atonement or our reconciliation be between God and man through Jesus Christ is an ongoing effect that is fully happening. So this means that those who sacrifice, for, sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs that ultimately pointed to Jesus, their atonement was finished. Whoever believed on him as he hung on the cross, he was saying their atonement was finished. And no matter what you look like or what you've done, whoever would trust in Jesus through faith and repentance, what he's saying is our atonement is finished. So the word is illustrating here that the atonement was, is, and will forever be finished. Jesus has made full payment, not partial payment. 
not half the payment, not just the interest rate, but Jesus has made full payment for our sins by allowing the wrath of God to be turned on him for our benefit. I don't know if you know, but the other day I got one of those calls. You know what calls I'm talking about. My nephew called me. He said, Uncle Ern, he said, I need you to do me a big favor. I know what this was going to turn into. He was asking me about one of the three B's. He was either going to beg for money, he was going to ask to borrow some money, or he was going to try to bully me for some money. So what he did was he threw me a curveball and he said, he said, Ernie, he said, Uncle Ern, would you co-sign on a car loan for me? Now, now you know I ain't got no hair, but I tell you the, the nubs on my head stood up when he said that. They stood right up, right on the back, right, right there. And for, for those who may not know, co-signing contractually involves a, prom a promise to pay someone's debt if that person fails to do so. In other words, if that person defaults on the payment, then I am left to pay the debt. Well, I, I, I tell you, I must admit, I wish I had the heart to tell him no. But I found myself making an excuse. I said, nephew, <laughs> you crazy. <laughs> nephew, <laughs> nephew, you crazy. You know, you know an excuse was coming. I said, nephew, I would do that for you, but see, the way, the way my checking in my savings is set up, I, I'm just not sure if it's going to transfer in time to take care of that loan. Some of y'all must watch TV up in here. And I can tell you today, brothers and sisters, I was a little bit reluctant to take on a debt that wasn't mine. But I'm so glad that my Jesus decided that he was going to take on a debt that wasn't his. Because of Adam's sin being passed down to his descendants, we took out a loan of unrighteousness. We took out a loan of iniquity, and the only way that we could pay back the loan is in hell with God's wrath turned on us on full blaze. But I'm so glad to Jay that when Jesus said Tetelestai, what he was doing was signing his name next to mine. He gave me a bailout. What he did was he merged my liability with his assets, and he transferred my debt to his account. I'm so happy today. He didn't complain about the interest rate. He didn't just make the monthly payment, but he took his righteous action in crisp $100 bills, put it to the throne room of God, and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. All the payment for your sin is finished. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. After Jesus made the payment, he gave me the title. And when you look on the front of the title, it says, Tetelestai. But when you turn it around, it says it's signed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And it stipulates that the one to whom I owe the debt to, I don't owe it no more because his son paid the wrath. So now I don't have to worry about being an enemy of God and the wrath being poured out on me again. But it's already been paid. Tetelestai, I got the title. And if you're happy that you got the title today, 
put your hands together and give the Lord some praise. If you have, are you happy that you got access to the presence of God? I dare you to say hallelujah. I dare you to shout. I dare you to thank God that I've got access to the Father by the Son, Jesus Christ. Come on, give the Lord some praise in this place. This day would begin unlike any other. After people would drink their morning coffee and eat their bagels, they would whisk out the door and out of the city to see the day's spectacles. Instead of preparing for the holy high day of the Sabbath, this day would be the day that they would waste time killing the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory. A day never seen before where the whole host of heaven will sit in the throne room watching a mystery unfold where they would see God rise up off of his throne to witness his son being burdened down by our putrid, smelly sin. The angels in heaven would watch as the father would rise up off of his throne and turn his back on his son. That's why Luke tells us that for those three hours that it was sun outside, but when the sun should have been at its highest, creation knew to hide for what was going on at this very moment. And Jesus innocently, he hangs there as pain pulsates from every nerve ending in his body. And he looks on one side and he sees the, the individual that hurled insults at him just a few hours prior. He looks down in front of the people and he sees the insults hurled back at him from the people that had worked so hard to push forward his demise, Jesus. As he hangs there on the cross, thinks about his predecessor, David. He thinks about how David suffered and didn't have an easy life. And David would one day when he was pressed and despised by people that were trying to embarrass him and trying to bring to his death, David would say the very things that Jesus would pick back up and utter. He would say based on Psalms 31, 5, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He, he would say to his daddy, this here is messed up. I'm here for your will. Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. I entrust my life. I'm showing you here that Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be dependent on God in difficult situations. We've all enjoyed watching Dean Winters portray mayhem in the famous commercials by Allstate. Mayhem showed up at times you didn't expect, but he came in very different forms. Sometimes he would show up as an emotionally compromised teenager, or he would show up as an explosive water heater, or a shaky tree, or my personal favorite, a car that runs through your living room. And whenever he would do this, you would hear a man with a very deep voice. He would say this, mayhem is everywhere. Are you in good hands? Let me stop on your street for a second. There are many of us here today that swear up and down that we have control over the life that we live. There are some of us now that feel like if I grind long enough, if I push hard enough, if I read enough, if I study enough, if I pray enough, if I work enough, if I store enough, 
then maybe I would have control over this life. But let me tell you, keep on living because life has a way of throwing you on the altar of anguish. Life has a way of throwing you on the crucifix of confusion. Life has a way of setting you on the hill of Hades and live long enough and see won't life turn you upside down. But in those moments, whose life, whose hands do we place our lives in? I, Jesus says we place them in God's hands. Now, God's hands ain't like my hands. I lose things often, but God's hands are great hands. Psalms 95 tells us that his hands form the very dry ground that we stand on. Isaiah 48, 13 says that his hands founded the earth and his hands spread out the heavens. And while we're on that note, his hands measures out the sky based on Isaiah 40, 12, from the thumb to the pinky. In his hands holds the water that fits in the earth. His hands are the very hands that touch the ground as he breathed into our nostrils and made us living beings. His hands, his hands are the hands that sustain you even now. His hands are the hands that hold all of creation from going out of whack. His hands, Jesus says, into his hands, I commend my soul. My question for you today, are you in the good hands of the Lord? Have you commended your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you placed your trust in the hands of the Lord? But what's even beautiful about this is after Jesus can make this statement, the scripture says that he breathes his last breath. Why is that? Because Jesus understood the hands that he breathed his last breath to would be the hands that would reach through a tomb to grab him on two days. Jesus understood that those hands that he's entrusting his life to, those will be the hands that would vindicate him. The hands that he is entrusting his soul to will be the hands that will defend him, the good hands of the Lord. Anybody know the good hands of the Lord? Wish I had seven people that knew the good hands of the Lord. Because if Jesus had not got up by the power of those good hands, you'd have no father to entrust your hands to. But those hands are the hands that reached down and grabbed you out of the miry clay. Those are the hands that massage your soul when you're up at night and you can't sleep. Those are the hands that provide for you when you don't know where money is going to come from. Those are the hands that keep your mind when you feel like going insane. I don't know about you, but I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very stained deep within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and he wrenched down from on high, and with them hands, he snatched me out the miry clay those hands he picked me up and bathed me in the blood of Christ those hands he used to make me his son those hands are you in the master's hands today have you entrusted your soul to the master today listen you might have walked in here confused you might have walked in here on your last dime you might have come in here all depressed and ready to go home and end your life but I dare you to place your trust in the hands of God. I dare you in this life that seems so random and unfair, when it deals you a blow that you can't handle, to be like Jesus and entrust your soul to the hands of the master. This text teaches us that dependence on the good hands of the Lord will bring you through difficult times.
You might be in a difficult time right now, but the good hands of the master may not pull you out that hard time, but the good hands of the master will be your defense. It will be your fortress. It will be the place that you find your trust. The good hands of the master in your difficult time. Amen.